Do you have questions about vaccinations? I know Montana is one state where its population is worried about the long-term effects of vaccinations given to newborns as well as the often non-effectiveness of seasonal vaccines. This Saturday on Gesundheit with Jacobus I will discuss these topics. And you don't want to miss the first two hours as my guest will be Dr. Sherry Tenpenny who has studied vaccines for over 7,000 hours. Whatever your doctor has not and will not tell you about vaccinations, you will learn from Dr. Sherry Tenpenny this Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with you today. It's going to be a very powerful program where we're going to talk about vaccines and the dangers of vaccines. And it's actually a perfect time. And I'll tell you just in a moment because we are in a very special month going to happen now in August right here in the Gallatin Valley. With, with me today is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. We are talking every week about health healing and healthy lifestyles. Do it with the experts. Give them a chance to chat about their profession or about a topic of their choice. As uh, always, as we are talking about health healing and healthy lifestyles, we uh, suggest that you always find information about it, more information about it by talking to a physician of your choice on finding more information about it on the internet, uh, read uh, reputable articles and books. We are here to educate, inform, and entertain. We are not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. Just want to let you know that. Uh, of course, you are very, very welcome that, uh, to listen to the program today, and we hope that you share the information with uh, your loved ones and that this will hopefully give you a key on your quest for better health. So uh, once again, thanks for tuning in today. It's going to be exciting. We are going to be talking to Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who is a doctor of osteopathic medicine. She is respected as one of the country's most knowledgeable and outspoken physicians regarding the impact of vaccines on health. As a member of the prestigious National Speakers Association, Dr. Dr. Tenpenny is an outspoken advocate for free choice in healthcare, including the right to refuse vaccination. As an internationally known speaker, she's highly sought after for her ability to present scientifically sound information regarding vaccination hazard and warnings that are rarely portrayed by conventional medicine. Most importantly, she offers hope through her unique treatments offered at Osteomed 2 for those who have been vaccine injured. Dr. Tenpenny is a graduate of the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio. She received her medical training at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine in Kirksville, Missouri. Dr. Penny was board certified in emergency medicine through 2005 and has been board certified in osteopathic manipulative medicine since 1995. In 1996, Dr. Tenpenny founded Osteomed II, expanded her practice and her vision of combining the best of conventional and alternative medicine. Osteomed is proud to report that patients from 38 states and 9 countries have come to the clinic to get well. She's a regular guest on radio and television talk shows, including the nationally syndicated Coast to Coast AM, 
Alex Jones and the Deborah Ray Show. She has been many time guest on Your Health with Dr. Richard Becker, aired on the Family Network. Her articles have been published in national magazines, newspapers, and internet sites, including newswithviews.com, The Huffington Post, and mothering.com. She's the author of the best-selling books, Foul, Bird Flu, It's Not What You Think, and the other book, which I have with me today, it's called Saying No to Vaccines, A Resource Guide for All Ages. I have a few DVDs at my house as well, and the ones that I have are vaccines, what the CDC documents and signs reveal, vaccines, the risks, the benefits, the choices, and Gardasil and the history of vaccinations. If you would like to call Dr. Tenpenny, the number you can dial is 440-239-1878, 440-239-1878. Now, she is available many ways on the internet. You can go to Dr. Dr. drdrtenpenny.com. You can go to myspace.com and then forward slash Dr. Tenpenny. And you can even find her on Facebook, uh, which I uh, which I am a member of now. And uh, so I'm connected with Dr. Tenpenny that way. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash forward slash vaccine info. Facebook.com forward slash vaccine info. That's quite an introduction. Dr. Tenpenny, good morning and thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, and I'm just, uh, it's always uh, humbling when you hear somebody read your whole life like that. I thought surely you would pick and choose a little of that, but uh, thank you for that uh, lengthy introduction. Well, I, will, I won't do it again. It's just a, a top of the hour. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, I, it's very much appreciated that you're with me. Uh, I was introduced to your name and your work uh, through somebody at the studio who uh, who gave me some information, and then I ended up uh, getting your DVDs and book, and I've been reading it and watching the DVDs uh, way back, I mean, about a year, a year and a half ago, and then I, I said, I got to get you on, and uh, I'm so happy that you uh, that you grace us today with your voice and with your knowledge, because uh, I know it is very hard to get a hold of you. You are a very busy person, so uh, it is uh, wonderful. Uh, Wonderful timing I just mentioned in the beginning of the show because what is going on right here in, in Montana, in Bozeman, Montana, there is a uh, tomorrow, starting tomorrow, there is going to be a an action happening with the local government where they are actually going to push the uh, use of vaccines coming up for the whole month of August, and it says over here, yesterday, yesterday morning in the newspaper, it said a startling statistic pegging Montana as the state with the lowest rate of immunizations for young children is the subject of a new public service ad campaign by local health groups set to roll out next month. It is called Dead Last. It will debut in August and feature print ads, radio spots, billboards, and movie theater previews. Hmm. It is an effort by the Gallatin City county health department, community health partners, and the Bozeman Deaconess Clinic, or Bozeman Deaconess Hospital, to encourage parents to get their kids immunized, which is uh, Matt Kelly said, so health department officer. According to the 2008 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention figures, the most current data available, Montana has the worst rate, they call it the worst, uh, maybe it's the best rate, uh, of immunizations for children 19 to 35 months. The national average is about seventy-six uh, percent, and Montana is about sixty percent. 
let no 50%. And uh, unofficial figures put Gallatin County's immunization rate at about 70%, unofficial, but low, they're much lower than that, about 50 Oh, it says over here, about 59% are only immunized. Um, he cited, uh, Matt Kelly, he cited the June 23rd New York Times article, which reported that five infants in California had recently died of pertussis, which I know you love to talk about, commonly known as whooping cough. The state has since declared a pertussis epidemic, with 910 confirmed cases, potentially the largest outbreak in 50 years. So anyway, we are in a state where people just don't like to get vaccinated. And uh, and so I thought it is wonderful to have you on to uh, to reinforce in our listeners why we definitely need to read the literature first before we make a decision. Oh, gosh, there's so much to say about that. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to say. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to understand that there's a difference between vaccination and immunization. We use those words interchangeably, interchangeably as though they were synonyms, and they're not. Vaccination simply is the act of getting a shot. It means that we inject something in you and we expect something to happen. To be immune means that you are prevented from getting an illness. And it's been it's common knowledge for those of us that have spent a long time researching this vaccine issue, which I've spent 10 years and probably close to 10,000 hours now of my yes, life yes. doing this every single day, writing on Facebook, writing articles, putting together DVDs and so on, that just because you get a shot and you develop an antibody, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to keep you from getting sick. So there's an assumption there that there is something called a protective antibody and that if you have that antibody, you won't get sick. However, it's it's well documented in the medical literature that that, that outbreaks occur amongst those who are, are vaccinated, um, who who are highly vaccinated. Um, the CDC and the public health officials would always like to point a finger, an accusing finger. It was at that at that all of these nidises of infection start with these unvaccinated kids. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, is let's say let's just pick a. Let's say there's 100 children that get sick and maybe 10 of them are unvaccinated and they say it starts there, then why is it that the other 90 that were vaccinated, they get sick too? Yes. So you can take on all of the risk of the vaccine and all the vaccine ingredients and the potential for lifetime disability and side effects and still get the illness. So my position has been and continues to be that vaccination is an artificial immunity if it increases immunity at all it doesn't provide herd immunity like the public health officials want us to believe we can take on all the risk of the infection and still get sick and that there's much better ways to stay healthy from the inside out than to um, get something that comes through a needle i wrote an article not too long ago that was that the title of the article was health does not come through a needle and i believe that firmly Yes, I, I agree with you as well. Plus, what uh, what you have really helped in exposing is the um, the ingredients. It's not just the fact that we are uh, inserting a needle in somebody's body and injecting some type of fluid. Or it, it, it is the, the carriers that go with it that uh, may be worse for you than the actual uh, ingredient that you try to stop a flu with, for example. Right, and now if children get every dose of every current vaccine. There's now 16 vaccines that are on the market. They now get 14 vaccines before the age of six. The other two that come are meningitis vaccine and Gardasil vaccine that come in teenagers. But children now get 49 doses 
of 14 vaccines before they're six, six years of age. 49, 49 doses of 14 vaccines. That's right. How does that work? 49 doses of, four, of 14? There's 14 vaccines that, that children get multiple doses of. So, for example, they get three doses. They get diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, polio, Hib, Prevnar, which is for strep, rotavirus vaccine, influenza, and they get multiple doses of those by the at two, four, and six months. And they get measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis A, influenza, year, one year of age. They are now starting to give influenza vaccines at six months of age, and every uh, year for the rest of that child's life, they are to get influenza vaccines, which are loaded with all sorts of problems. Yeah. Um, it's it's really like we are these the these children are nothing more than repositories of products from the drug companies. Yes. And when you see a fully completed vaccination record these days, and you see all the vaccines listed down one side and across the top the dates, you know, two, four, and six months, and then there's initials and dates that are in. When you look at that piece of paper, it is beyond me how any medical professional can look at that and think that that causes no harm. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's one piece of paper, and when you see this, it's like dose after dose after dose after dose. And last night I was reading an article from, that was put out from the NIH that, that freely admits that there are many, many more vaccines coming down the pipeline, not only for children, but also for adolescents and adults. Well, but in order for the true. pharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies to be protected from liability, they have to get it approved for children and put, put it on what is called the CDC's vaccination table. That protects them from liability. Mm-hmm. So that means that all of these vaccines have to be approved from ki- for kids so that we cannot sue the drug companies in the event of an adverse event. Hmm, That's interesting. And, so and, and I, the way that the, the, the law apparently is, is set up this way is that the Secretary of Health has the authority to, uh, to quarantine people, to uh, mandate vaccines if uh, she feels, in uh, this case, uh, Catherine Sibelius, uh, of Kathleen Sibelius, um, she, whenever she feels like it. And that's another problem that we're dealing with. Well, the, the mandatory vaccination hammer is floating around out there, and as, as of yet, there is not any firm uh, recommendations that, about mandatory vaccination that all the way goes all the way back to the Homeland, Homeland Security and all of the things that came out in 2006. Yeah. There were a lot of issues, and, they, and depending on the interpretation of, the, of those acts and those laws, and if we get a little heavy-handed about it, if we go from what we would call cooperation, which is c- encouraging people to, tr- to get them vaccinated, to coercion, which is requiring them to get vaccinated, um, there's some thin lines there, and we're skating on some very thin ice. Um, the medical literature, in per- in, in, particularly in the public health journals, is now being loaded up with articles uh, about the healthcare workers, about the fact that voluntary vaccination for parents hasn't been working. Now we have to come up with other things to, to force these requirements. So the powers that be absolutely want all of these doses of drugs injected into children, and they are going to get, and I believe it's because more people are getting informed. They're understanding that this cannot possibly be harmless. They're looking at the ingredients. They're looking at the vaccination schedules. There's hardly a person out there in the United States that doesn't know some family that has an autistic child yeah. these days because yeah. of autism being so, pro- so pervasive. And they're asking questions, and they're looking around, and they're saying, I don't want to do this. And yes. it's making the pharmaceutical industry and the public health officials very nervous. 
Yes, you're absolutely right. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. You can find a lot of information about her on her website, drtenpenny.com, dr, dr. Tenpenny.com, and um, I highly recommend that if you have any concern about vaccines, or even if you say, you know, I'm all pro vaccines, I'm listening to this uh, to this radio show now, and uh, I want to see what she's writing so I can prove her wrong. By all means, go to her website, just browse through it, find information, look at the resources that she's using. Dr. Tenpenny has gone to the CDC; she went way straight to the top. Get the information from the from the organizations that are actually involved in uh, promoting the, uh, the the vaccinations in this country, and she's getting her information right from the top. So you find you'll be more educated, pro or con, uh, about vaccines uh, than any other place when you go to drtenpenny.com. And uh, yes, Dr. Tenpenny. Well, it's interesting that you you said that about uh, about looking to see to prove me wrong because I've had many doctors, medical doctors, over the years who have quietly purchased my book or my DVDs, and they've looked at on the DVD as as you know because you mentioned that you've you've watched them. Yes. All of the material that's there is footnoted and referenced from either a a, a reference from the CDC or from a conventional peer reviewed medical journal. Yes, And I've had people who have actually told me that they've taken those references and they've pulled them because they wanted to prove that I had taken that information out of context, that I had skewed the numbers, that I had done something different just to kind of make a point, yes. and that I've gotten emails back from people saying, wow, um, what you did was absolutely correct, and I had no idea that that was there. That's right, and and what I feel reading it and listening to it, seeing the information, uh, you first uh, read about it, then you give your comment. It's not that you are philosophizing and try to figure out where you can get the references to uh, to justify... To, to, support, the, my, to support my <laughs> opinion. I mean, it's like, here's the information. All you have to do is go and look at it. Yeah, totally true. The... Some of the information, I think uh, it, it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the history. Uh, we have a few minutes that you maybe, how how far back do we go to say this is when vaccinations actually started? I think it started with uh, with cowpox or something? Well, it started with the, yes, with the cowpox vaccine that ostensibly was to eradicate smallpox. And it's interesting because whenever people are, are first being introduced to the, to the vaccine issue, I guess I, I would call it that, it always starts with, well, what about smallpox and what about polio? Mm-hmm. And it's in smallpox, the smallpox vaccines were originally made in this like 1790s. Um, the history of mandatory, va- uh, the history of vaccination is just an absolutely uh, fascinating yeah. sort of um, read. If, if people are really interested in that, I would, there's two books I would suggest. One is called Bodily Matters, B-O-D-I-L-Y, Bodily Matters by Dr. Nanja Durbach, which is the history of mandatory vaccination from 1863 to 1902 when Jacobson versus Massachusetts came into the United States, which required states to have laws to have children vaccinated before they go to school. Mm-hmm. That whole history that started from 1863 forward, it started in the U.K., in, in England, with the very first mandatory vaccination law that was then rolled into the United States. 
The first vaccination happened in the U.S. was in South Carolina in 1800. And it just, there was, there's a lot of very uh, robust history that has to do with that. From the very beginning, there were people who said this vaccine stuff cannot be good. We are injecting cow pus and cow matter and viruses and all sorts of chemicals mm-hmm. into these children. And there was a movement in the, 18, in the late 1860s called Our Baby's Battle, where mothers were, were, were taking their children and hiding them from public health officials. And if they were in apartments, they had holes cut in the wall. So when the vaccinators came to the door, that they would shove their children through the holes in the wall to the next-door neighbor's apartment to protect them. Wow. So this battle against this mandatory vaccination and this insane thought that we can inject all this stuff into children and somehow keep them healthy has been around from the very inception of vaccination. Hmm. So it's wow. a very it's been a very very long battle. So some of the things that we're doing now in terms of standing up against these public health officials is not new. It's history repeating itself. Hmm. The difference is that there's more vaccines now. At that time there was only the smallpox vaccine which they used cowpox instead of smallpox. There was only one vaccine. Now we have 14, we have 16 vaccines in multiple doses of them. We have, so there's a, a bigger, more robust reason for why that we should, we should stand up against these vaccinators. Yes. And, and of course, the, uh, it's not only the children, but we're talking about, we're also talking about adults. Uh, when people travel or if there is uh, the fear of bioterrorism, then uh, the CDC is already working up something so that uh, if they decide uh, that it needs to be done, that people need to be vaccinated, that you get these mass vaccinations. And we're not even talking now about the flu vaccine, which uh, has shown that it really doesn't do any mu- that it doesn't do much to people. So we'll definitely talk more about it as we go around or go along here. Uh, but the history is indeed very interesting, and as you mentioned, the the, the fight that people have uh, fought. Uh, to fi- to to reject to resist uh, mandatory vaccinations uh, has been obviously the human mind says wait something is not right here and uh, so luckily they have done that uh, they have done that throughout history uh, folks we're going to take a short break uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny is my guest today on Gesundheit with Jacobus I much appreciate you with us today and make sure you check out Dr. Tenpenny's website Dr. Tenpenny Dr. Tenpenny So stay tuned. We're going to be right back. For those of you who are keeping track of what's going on in the news today, you know that there has been some news about California. Uh, There is a worry about pertussis or whooping cough outbreak. It's been big news over there, and they have actually called in the state of emergency and as an epidemic, so to say, about uh, pertussis. And Dr. Tenpenny jumped on that right away, and she has some great information about it, uh, Dr. Tenpenny. So I really appreciate uh, you with us this morning. Um, what are your thoughts about the pertussis outbreak in California? Well, it's just a terror attack on the general public is yeah. what I think that it is. It's, is, is, uh, um, because they make it sound like pertussis never happens, and when it does happen, it's just a horrible type of thing. And the truth of the matter is that the only people that are, the only children that are seriously at risk for a serious pertussis uh, infection are children under the age of three months of age, maybe four months of age. And it's because the size of their windpipe is really small. Yeah. And pertussis is, um, is a bacterial infection 
but the, croup, the, the, the cough that you get and the whooping cough really has to do with a toxin that's released from the bacteria that causes a lot of inflammation in the lungs mm-hmm. or in the bronchial tubes. And it's just a very, there's not a lot of mucus. There's generally not much fever, if any. And if it, you do have a fever, it's probably not pertussis. It's probably some other type of pathogen. And it causes a lot of inflammation, and it causes a very deep, harsh cough. And, and the whoop that comes from the whooping cough is when you cough really hard, and then you take in a very <gasps> inhale like that against right. a, a spastic um, bronchial tube. And that's where the hoop of the whooping cough comes in. So you, you, in, by definition, pertussis or whooping cough can be diagnosed if you've had a chronic, long-lasting cough that's been going on for more than 30 days. So I I believe that many, many people, children, adolescents, and adults, have had pertussis, have experienced it, and it's been treated as bronchitis, um, and they just have this cough that goes on and on. It's either treated as bronchitis or treated as an allergy, and in, over time it just gets better. The, the toxin gets loosened from, those, from the mucous membranes and goes away. In very small children, like children under four months of age, their windpipe is very small. It's smaller around than what the size of, your, of, a, of an adult's pinky finger would be. And so it's, the harsh cough is really, really hard on them. And so that's where there are some, some legitimate concerns. Other than that, it's just an annoying cough. It's a hack that goes on. Kids can be really sick in terms of coughing. They can keep the whole household up at night for months on end. But it's not as serious as what parents are led to believe. Okay. In fact, every year there's usually outbreaks of pertussis between June and September. And I went through many documents from the CDC's documents from 1997, 2002, 2006, and 2008. These huh. were summaries of notifiable diseases that have the actual number of reported cases of pertussis and the actual numbers of deaths per year from pertussis. I see. So that means numbers of death of children that were not vaccinated or children that were vaccinated, or do they have the numbers? They don't really break that out in terms of vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but they just give you like a number of deaths. And I, I just want to let people know how small these numbers are. Now, that's not to minimize the tragedy if someone has lost a child, but I'm going to make an analogy here for you. Mm. For example, in 2006, nationwide, there were 15,632 cases of, re- of, of reported pertussis. That's confirmed pertussis where they do a nasal swab and they actually confirm that you have pertussis. Okay. 15,600 there were nine deaths. Wow. In 2007, there were 10,454 reported confirmed cases. There were 10 deaths. Hmm. They've made this into a national hysteria. Now, if we had 15,000 kids vaccinated with with nine deaths, they would call that that was statistically insignificant and the vaccine was just fine. Yes. But if we have an infection of 15,000 kids and we have nine deaths, it's a tragedy, it's an epidemic, and everybody needs to vaccinate. I see. Yeah. So That's if anybody would like to get those tables, there's one table that I put together that, has, that goes back clear to 1987. I collated all of the data from 1987 up through 2007 to show the number of cases of pertussis and the annual number of cases of deaths, which are very small and very insignificant in terms of the way that we we, we call this a hysteria. And another one that I put together about pertussis is what is actually in the pertussis vaccine. Yes. 
There are three forms of that vaccine. One is for infants, one is for, for teens, and now they're coming out with one for adults. There's, there are three forms of aluminum. There's 2-phenoxyethanol, which is known to be toxic to kidneys and the nervous system. There's formaldehyde. There's polysorbate 80, which has been shown to cause infertility in mice. There is mercury in tripedia, uh, which is one of the, the DPT vaccines. There's a very long list of toxic ingredients that are also injected ostensibly to keep you healthy. Yes. And if people would like to have copies of both of those PDFs, there's one that's, that's on the components of the DPT vaccine, and there is the other one on all of the statistics that go back to 1987. You can just go to drtenpenny.com, and on the home page, there's a link where you can download those PDF files, hand them out to your friends, attach them as emails uh, on your email to all of your friends, give it to your local public health department, take it to your pediatrician, let them know that this is not a reason to be hysterical. Right, and you did this uh, in June, just last month, you made this. Uh, you made this. Uh, in, you gave this information out, and it said indeed uh, to do, because people say, "Well, there's mercury in it. There's not. There is. There is not." Uh, you found out that the thimerosal used during the manufacturing of these vaccines, it says over here, said to have less than 0.3 microgram per dose, according to the FDA. The exact quantities in the vials have not been confirmed by independent testing. Uh, then you say multi-dose vials with thimerosal, 25 microgram per dose. That's eight times, no, what am I saying? That is uh, that is 10 times higher. Yes, exactly. Than, than what they say it would be. So 10, no, why are we talking about 10? Yes, 10. Almost 10 times. Almost 10 times. Uh-huh. So that is uh, that is very scary, scary information. Yeah, and what I'm really wanting to drive home here to to your many listeners is the fact that there, if you keep your vitamin D level up and you keep your vitamin C level up in children, children should be given about 10 milligrams per pound, and they should be get about uh, 35 units per pound of vitamin D. And after they're about five years of age, they can take uh, easily take one to 2,000 units of vitamin D a day that comes in a drop. We've got that available on our website. I'm sure you can find it in health food stores and other places. But vitamin C and vitamin D are both very important for any type of viral infection. We have, as, as you know, Jacobus, because you've been on my Facebook page, there's a lot of discussion about uh, this pertussis outbreak on the, on the, on the vaccine info wall. And yes. we have almost 16,000 fans, and it's a great place, and I encourage all of your listeners to come and join us there because we have, it's a great community for discussing this. And we don't allow antagonists because we want people to ask legitimate questions. Yes. And when we talk about, you know, parents will say, my child got sick, I gave them 50,000 units of vitamin D for three days and they were just fine. Yes. We've gotten very afraid of vitamin D for no real good reason. But I thought, I thought that vitamin D uh, takes about a week, six to seven days, to really start uh, uh, going into the cells because it's a fat-soluble uh, vitamin. So if you say that it works even within days, that is, uh, that's great. It works when you use very large doses for a very short period of time. Yeah. You can knock out just about any viral or bacterial infection just okay. within just a few days. Yes. Now, those aren't doses that you would want to take ongoing, no. But if you're sick and you really need a boost, you can sort of look at it as your natural recovery mechanism with the vitamin C and vitamin D to just go in there and be a big antioxidant and, and a, a big way to boost up your immune system to kick out that uh, invader that got into your system. I see. All right. And then, uh, so vitamin D, I've recommended vitamin D quite a bit. And, it's, you know, folks, uh, vitamin D, 
you start reading about what that wonderful vitamin can do and the fact that even in the sunny states of this country, people are very, very deficient in vitamin D because we make vitamin D through our cholesterol. It is just that it is not activated until the sun actually hits our skin. And so most of us don't walk around in the nude, so we don't get enough sun exposure. And when we do walk around uh, quite a bit exposed, uh, we use sunscreen in order to protect the deadly sun rays, so to say, from entering our body. So it is very hard, even for people in the sunny states, to get enough vitamin D through the sun. You need to take it as a supplement, especially as Dr. Tenpenny is saying, to fight off uh, infections, and especially the viral infections have been very good, but it is so beneficial for many other things uh, besides the fact that it helps it helps calcium absorption. And, um, yeah, that's good stuff. And then vitamin C and vitamin A are two of the other vitamins that you highly recommend. Absolutely. And I want to just say a couple of other things about vitamin D. It's If you start reading in the medical literature, and there's been so much more in the popular press in the last year or two about vitamin D, but it's... it's um, it, there, every single organ system in your body benefits by highly elevated vitamin D levels. They have reported that if vitamin D levels were adequate, um, it would decrease the incidence of breast and colon cancer by more than 50%. Yeah. Um, and, and when I say adequate, for your listeners, it's very important for you to know what that number means. Because when you get a blood test for a vitamin D level, you'll get a, every blood test comes back with a range of normal. Yeah. And the range of normal on this test is usually listed between 30 and 100. So if it comes back at 35, people say, oh, good, I'm in the adequate range. But actually, you're not. Mm-hmm. You need to have it be at least 50 for an extended period of time for your body to start absorbing it and using it. And ideally, you want to have your level between 80 and 100 all year round. And I know that, you know, we're coming into fall and winter season, and all of us that live north of the 40th parallel, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and you're in Montana. That's right. So when you're at at that level, you definitely need to have more vitamin D throughout the winter to keep your levels up. Mm. Um, And I've really always, and I've said for a long time, that if we stopped the vaccination, or at least if we cut it down by 80% or more, and we increased our vitamin D levels to be between 80 and 100, we would decrease the incidence of, of chronic disease so massively that we wouldn't have to have to spend another trillion dollars to treat disease. We would, we would get rid of it. That's right. Uh, yes, vitamin D has, uh, has shown uh, so many benefits uh, to people, and especially what you mentioned, also the viral infections of all kinds have been uh, fought, and, and, and the research in cancer is, is very good as well. And I know somebody who actually did 50,000 vitamin D a day for about six months, and he had a slight infection of his kidneys. So uh, when that happened, uh, he said, okay, I cut it back down to about 10,000 a day. Okay, we, I think we have a couple callers. Uh, let's start with caller number one. Uh, good morning to you. What is your name? You're on the air with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Good morning to you. <laughs> My name is Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hi. I was calling to find out, how, you know, how do you get around vaccinations when you're trying to enroll your kids in school? Is there any, anything you can do? Um, in, the state of, in the state of Montana, you have a, a medical exemption and a religious exemption. 
the religious, okay. and I'm not exactly sure how tightly the meta, the religious exemption is listed in the state of Montana. Um, some states, they're more like philosophical exemptions, which means that you have to make a statement of claim that you have understood that injecting viruses, bacteria, and chemicals is toxicity to your body and is against your belief system of how the body heals and takes care of itself. Um, okay. If you if you go to there's a website it's it's uh, www dot n like Nancy v like Victor i like Iris c like Charlie nvic dot org and you click on the, uh, the right on the homepage at the top it says state laws and you can find what the actual state law is for the state of Montana mm-hmm. so that you okay. can um, can can follow the letter of the law now. The thing about declaring a, an exemption, if it's a religious exemption or any other type of exemption in other states, um, once you declare that, that exemption, going forward, you can't waffle. You can't mm-hmm. say, you can't pick and choose which vaccines you want oh. because mm-hmm. then it negates all of it and you have to go back and get all of the shots because you okay. have to have a firm, firmly held conviction that this is against my belief systems of what I want to have happen to my children. And mm-hmm. it's not the way that God has intended me to stay healthy and stay uh, by injecting this stuff into me. So there has to be a firmly held conviction about that. But there are okay. ways around it. Because mm-hmm. hmm. I, I was born in northern Idaho, and there we didn't have to have vaccines when I was growing up. And then I moved. we moved to Montana just before my fifth grade year, and I had to have all the vaccinations supposedly, unless maybe there was something that my dad didn't know about, um, you know, with this medical or religious exemption. So we did have the vaccinations at that time. Um, I see. And then you were just talking about the vitamin D. So with a supplement, how many milligrams a day would you take as, with a supplement to get your levels up to that 50% or that 50 up above eighty, wow. up above okay. eighty. Most most of my patients, um, we get to, uh, right around the time zone change or the time change of, of going back to um, daylight savings time when the, the, mm-hmm. we set the clocks back. Mm-hmm. We ha- I really encourage my patients and other people to get a blood test drawn, and the blood test is a twenty five dash OH vitamin D level. So it's 25-hydroxy vitamin D. It's the 25-OH vitamin D level. You mm-hmm. can get it through your doctor. You can order it through our website. There's a lot of places, ways that you can get that done. Okay. And okay. if the level is, uh, is above 30, then I suggest that during the wintertime you should take at least 10,000 units a day as an adult. And children should take at least 2,000 units a day. Uh, any child over the age of 5 can safely take that without a problem. Okay. I, yeah, and I, I heard Dr. Mercola say on his website, uh, take your body weight in pounds and multiply it by 35 to have a baseline. That's that's probably right. There's a lot of formulas that are out yeah. there that you can use. But, you know, ten, up to 10,000 units a day. I have my patients on 10,000 units a day almost yes. all winter long. Yes. And they don't get sick. We use some homeopathics to, to keep away the colds and flus in the winter, plus elevated vitamin D levels and... You know, my patients stay pretty healthy all winter long. Plus, and if they do get sick, yeah. they it's it's over in a couple of days. Plus the effect that vitamin D has on your mood, especially oh, when yeah. the sun goes down. For, yeah, because the people that have that seasonal affective disorder and they think they're like depressed because it's gray and gloomy all winter, that's really because they're not making enough vitamin D. 
And I've had some patients that have been chronically depressed for years, and when we finally got their vitamin D level up between 80 and 100 to where it was very highly therapeutic, it was the first time where a lot of the, a lot of the depression had just lift, lifted. I see. Uh-huh. Well, th- Sarah, thank you so much. Does that answer thank your question? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank All right. you very much. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. For a second caller, uh, you are on the air with Dr. Tenpenny. What is your name and how can we help you? Okay. Hi. Um, this is uh, Lisa. Hello, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Um, great. Um, hi, Dr. Tenpenny. Good morning. Um, uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, not vaccinated my uh, children, um, but going into one is starting preschool, and um, I wanted to relook at the vaccines again, and one of the ones that is always keeps coming back to me. I think it's a fear of parents. I think a lot is meningitis. Can yes. you can you uh, expand upon that and your thoughts? Um, you know, I've gone through looking at the uh, the profile of the vaccines and how you can get the vac- you can actually get meningitis from it. I'm just curious on your take on it on um, how to protect themselves and what I should do. Now, are you talking about? Hib meningitis in an in, in a small child, or are you talking about teenagers? You know, pre middle school and teenager vaccine the meningitis. No, I'm talking about. Well, I think there's hib. Well, I I want to make sure I'm understanding right. There was hib, and I think there was prevnar. There was a couple of them I was looking at. Um, my daughter's three, so okay. she's never had anything. So okay. I just want to get your take on what what you think on meningitis and. Well, it, hib the hib vaccine is for a bacteria called Haemophilus influenza B. That's the name of the bacteria. So that's why it's Haemophilus influenza B, and they took the HIV, and that's what they call the vaccine. They call it the Hib. Um, it is, um, that bacteria was the most common cause of ear infections in children under the age of four for many, many years. And the Hib vaccine was actually released in 1991, and when they started using that vaccine out in the general population, that bacteria was lysed a lot, and the incidence of, of Hib meningitis dropped like a rock. It really did work from that perspective. There were some problems with the vaccine in terms of long-term complications with it that they've shown that there's some statistically uh, significant increases of insulin-dependent diabetes in relationship to that vaccine. The bacteria that is not around very much anymore, in fact, they're now saying that, you know, nature abhors a a vacuum and that Haemophilus influenza B, there are now multiple strains of it that are trying to fill in the gap. So the vaccine isn't as effective as it used to be. And because of the bac- the bacteria is changing, number one and number two, the the actual amount of that bacteria in circulation is down by a lot. Children that have been breastfed, children that are that are healthy and that are kept away from from a lot of sugars, they don't mm-hmm. suck on a bottle at night. They really have a very low risk of even having that type of infection to generate that type of meningitis. Okay. The and same that thing with the the, my, prev, okay. the Prevnar is the other one. Now Prevnar right. is for strep. And they talk about strep meningitis, and statistically, that is so rare. I mean, it hardly okay. ever happens, even before they started with the with the Prevnar vaccine. It just doesn't happen very often. It's very I, rare. That's what I wanted to ask you. You know, she's uh, we feed her organically. I mean, she very low sugar diet. You know, breastfed. Um, you know, very holistic. I mean, she was just snacking on hummus and carrots for a snack. I mean, <laughs> it, she hasn't been sick. She hasn't good, had a cold good or mommy. in eighteen months. I mean, we're for, I'm very. You know, I take it very serious. I don't. You know, I think having not doing vaccines is, you know, for me, it, that works. But at the same time, it's a lifestyle, too. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't just not inject vaccines and then give my child a pop or something, you know. 
That's um, great. So I, I appreciate that. That just gives me, you know, more um, support. And then just the last question was just on tetanus, just for clarification. If something would ever happen and she did step on a rusty nail or, you know, anything that she would need a true tetanus shot, what's the window? I've tried to read upon it, and I just don't feel like I'm getting, like if she had, I know the window of opportunity to get the um, immunoglobulin, is that what mm-hmm. it is? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tetanus aspect of it. What? What do you think the window would be? Because that always makes me uncomfortable. If she's going to school now, yeah. I'm not there to say, honey, be careful, you know. You know, there, um, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that because that comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, tetanus is a very slowly developing infection. If you're, it, and, and even in, under the best circumstances, I mean, back when I was an ER doctor, we used to, when people would say, you know, I don't know if I've had a tetanus booster or not. That generally the the rule of thumb in the medical literature is if you if you got a, a dirty cut or infection, you right. have up to seventy two hours to even find out whether or not you've had a tetanus shot or something in the past. Okay. Um, it does. It's not like you know I stepped on a rusty nail and like tomorrow I'm going to have tetanus. It doesn't happen like that. Right. And right. You've got and and there've been reported cases in the literature that it's 10 to 20 days later that you start to get some tingling and start to have some issues that you think mm. might be tetanus. But the other thing is that you can get tetanus sh- you can have four or more tetanus shots and still get tetanus. So the most important right. thing is good wound hygiene, wash it out with lots of soap and water and pour a okay. lot of peroxide on Sadly it. Sadly enough, uh, Dr. Tenpenny and Lisa, we have to go off the air to take a short break. So uh, thanks thank for the call, so Lisa. Much. Keep listening. Thank you. Folks, we'll be right back. Let me tell you some of the things that are being said in her book. And this is in a book that talks about saying no to vaccines. Uh, one of the forewords is by Dr. Andrew Molden, who is a, uh, he is a physician and a neuroscientist with a background in neuroimmunology and brain disorders. And he says, for example, he says, physicians are trained to understand genetic individuality. Different people can have different tolerances to foreign substances entering their bodies. If penicillin shots and peanut butter sandwiches were mandated, many children would be harmed. Some would even die. If we cannot give penicillin or peanut butter to everybody safely, the logical progression that injecting live, biologically active, immunogenetic particles cannot be safe for everyone either. How clinical medicine has allowed public health vaccination policies to subvert what physicians know to be wrong science remains a mystery. Or to be wrong science remains a mystery. Dr. Tenpenny's research supports the fact that anyone can have a reaction to a vaccine, and at this point, anticipating who will react remains unpredictable. Can we truly call such an adverse event a coincidence? Well, I mentioned that Lisa talked, uh, called us at the end of the last hour and talked about meningitis. And uh, you were, uh, sadly enough, we had to go. So you would like to continue with the meningitis a little bit, uh, highlight some of that. Yeah, we talked uh, at the, uh, uh, initially a little bit about the Haemophilus influenza B meningitis, which has um, basically been eliminated. And yes, it's a, lo- a lot in part due to the vaccine. It's a different type of vaccine, and so is the Prevnar, than, say, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. It's a different type of, of vaccine. However, now that we're continuing to use that vaccine, we've got another set of problems that may be associated with it, including um, neurological problems and, and diabetes. Excuse me, um, for both the Hib and the Prevnar. And I wanted to bring up, because I'm sure that some of your listeners have teenagers, 
Yes. And going into middle school now, they are really pushing the the meningitis vaccine caused by a different bacteria called Neisseria um, meningitidis. It's the big gun. It's the really bad, very highly infective, and a lot of mortality associated with that infection. So the Menactra and Menimmune are the two vaccines that they're using for that. Um, both of them have four different strains of meningitis that are covered by the vaccine, but the most common strain of meningitis that causes the infection is not included in those vaccines. The antibodies only last for about two years, and so um, we're injecting something to protect um, against a a bacteria that isn't even in the vaccine, Hmm. number one. Hmm. Number two, there's a black box box warning label on the Menactra about the possibility of developing Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a very serious neurological disease disease that can cause paralysis. And meningitis is a very bad disease, and I don't mean to downplay that at all. However, protecting the general population against meningitis is sort of like trying to protect against a stray bullet. It happens once in a while, and when it happens, it's generally deadly. But we don't make everybody wear flak jackets just on the outside risk that somewhere, somehow, there might be a stray bullet. And that's kind of how meningitis, the, 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 the deadly meningitis works. We don't know, it, it, it happens spontaneously when there's a quote-unquote outbreak. There's one or two people that may be involved with it. It's not passed on or spread on like, a, like an influenza would be or maybe even a measles would be. It's not spread that way. And so it happens, and when people get it, they can be very sick. They can, uh, so, uh, there's a lot of people that can even die from it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a random event. So to mass vaccinate a population against a random event with a vaccine that doesn't even cover the most common strain yes. and can cause serious neurological problems, I don't think that's a good public health policy at all. I see. That is very well, very well said. I appreciate that. We have a caller on hold who would like to get in touch with Dr. Tenpenny. Uh, caller, your name, please. How can we help you? Hi, this is Joel. Hi, I'm Joel. a senior citizen. I've had the uh, doctor uh, it, say that I could have a shot to immunize or protect against uh, pneumonia. I never have had pneumonia, and I've declined to take it, but I wonder what her thoughts are on that. Huh, good point, Joel. Well, the adult pneumonia shot contains 21 strains of st- uh, antigens from 21 strains of strep bacteria. So it's kind of like getting 21 vaccines in one shot. Wow. So it has a, a lot of, um, of antigens that get pushed into your system and a lot of chemicals at the same time. That used to be when they came out with the pneumonia shot, they used to say if you got one, it, was, it would cover you for life. And then they decided that, well, maybe once every 10 years because the antibodies go away. And then it was like once every five years. And now they're saying once every two years. So how effective is it really? Mm. And so Mm. primarily to protect yourself against strep, I mean, it's some of the things that we talked to uh, talked about in the first hour: vitamin D, vitamin C, good hand washing, plenty of exercise, getting lots of sleep, um, not smoking. Um, those are all the things that you need to do to protect yourself against strep. You don't uh, shot, uh, protection and health does not come through a needle. And so, if you've never had pneumonia, um, I wouldn't start getting a pneumonia shot now. Well, is that does, that's, a, that's great advice, Joel? Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, pass the word. All right. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Caller, good morning. Your name, please. You are on the air with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. 
Hi, Jacobus and Dr. Tenpenny. This is Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Um, you know, I have, um, I have just recently in the last two years begun to become aware of the vaccine controversy. My sons are 17 and 19 and have both had Menactra. They've had um, flu shots up until about two or three years ago. When I became aware of what was happening and the government's manipulation of the pandemic that was happening, that I have informed them both, one is in college and one is uh, here, that if somebody wants to give them a shot, and they are pushing the flu shots at college mm-hmm. and at high school, that mm-hmm. they should run in the other direction, get on their cell phone, call me, and I'll come pick them up. <laughs> because it is my fear that there is a mass inoculation yes. plan going on, and it and and I've stopped taking a flu shot. I mean, my last flu shot was three or four years ago. I won't allow my husband to take them, and of course, they think I'm they think I'm nuts. But I don't feel comfortable in any. I mean, I don't trust the government at this point in my life to do what's best for me and my family. And I figure good hand washing. Um, you know, they know about they carry with them when they're when they're. At school, they each have a hand sanitizer, you know, that they can use. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, you know, stay away from people who are coughing. Mm -hmm. Stay away from people who are sneezing. Um, You know, put this on your hands. Don't touch your mouth. Don't touch your eyes. Is there anything else I can do? Um, Get their vitamin D levels tested. Make sure that's high. And that's probably the most. Well, it depends on what their level is, but the level needs to be somewhere between 80 and 100, at -hmm. least 60. 60 is good, between 80 and 100 is optimal. And they can safely take at their ages 10,000 units a day during the winter without a problem at all. But I want to make a comment about what you said about not taking the flu shot and everybody thinks you're crazy. Because it's been shown unequivocally in very large studies that the Cochrane Collaboration came out with back in 2006 that shows that they've, they looked at uh, multi-years for senior citizens. They looked at um, uh, multi-years for people in the middle age group and for kids. And it was shown in all three populations, children, middle-aged adults, and senior citizens, that getting a flu shot is no more, a pr- no more effective to keeping you from getting the flu than if they gave you a shot of sterile water. It's no more effective than placebo to keep you from yeah. getting the flu. Wow. And one of the reasons is, is because there's three viruses in that flu shot. There's two influenza A viruses and an influenza B virus. And of those, and, and statistically, and I, just, and I actually just spent about six hours on the CDC's website yesterday looking at these numbers, and that between 1997 and 2005, of all of the specimens that they've tested, and there's 10 regions across the country, and there's 10 regions that are, that are blocked out, that when somebody goes to the doctor or goes to an urgent care, that they are contracted by the CDC to take a swab and send it to the CDC, and they test it to see what is actually causing them to have the symptoms of the flu. And of, for between all of those years, and including last year when we had all the swine flu stuff, that only 13% of those swabs were at, of people being sick were actually caused by influenza viruses. Wow. Yeah. Only and that's, 13%. And, and that's, that's pretty incredible. Wow. And, I, and I, you know, I feel I'm, my kids have had all the vaccines. Every one of them, they're both normal, healthy children. I'm grateful for that. 
is there any sequelae to the vaccine that might show up later in life? No, there's I mean, no way. There's no way of predicting that. No way of predicting it. Yeah, I, I just. And I if feel... they're pretty, and if they're pretty healthy now, and they don't really have problems, because one of the things that we talk about, or I talk about a lot, in terms of of the spectrum of vaccine injury, it can be things like ADD, ADHD, asthma, allergies, eczema, um, cancer, oh. insulin dependent diabetes, all sorts of problems. And if your children don't have any of those then they escaped the problem. Well, one of them has severe uh, allergies to nuts, but he has, he's never, I mean, he, he was off the scale on the RAS testing. He hates nuts. He's never, he's never eaten nuts. But, yeah, but um, I, and I've put together a lot of information that shows that, one of the, that there is some cross-reactivity between the gelatin and the MMR vaccine and in the flu shots with, yeah. with peanuts. There's some cross-reactivity from the salicylate portion of thimerosal, which is mercury, to pine nuts and tree nuts. So we've created a lot of problems with these vaccines. Yeah. A, a yeah. lot of problems. Mm, yeah. Well, and I agree, and like I said, it's too, it's too late for me, but... It's I not too late for your, gran- for your coming grandchildren. Absolutely. Get them educated now. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel much more educated now. And, but and like I said, I told them, anybody wants to give them a flu shot, run in the other direction, call mother. <laughs> good for you. That's good advice. You know, Thank Sherry, you Sherry, uh, yeah. not a thing I want to say, uh, another one you can try for the winter. And I have had uh, people coming to me about uh, vitamin D. And they, like Dr. Pen- Tenpenny is saying, uh, the vitamin D, 10,000 units a day, uh, during the wintertime has helped many people stay away from the flu shot. And the yeah. other thing you may want to keep in mind is the effect, uh, the, the positive effect of silver. And uh, Sovereign Silver is, a, is one of the companies that makes a very fine mist of uh, silver. And uh, we've had people, and, and uh, silver is an antiviral, antifungal, and antibacterial. So it naturally protects the system. And we've had uh, people take the silver on a daily basis, like a teaspoon or two teaspoons a day. And uh, there is even a, a silver gel, which would uh, uh, replace the effect of the regular antibacterial soap that you would have. Because the antibacterial soap that's out there, you talk about washing your hands. Obviously, the flu is a virus. It's not a bacteria. So the silver has also a gel that you can use and just rub your hands with, and it dries up just as quickly as you have those antibacterial soaps. So that is something to keep in the well, house. And I use I use silver ointment on my horses. Okay. On their wounds and my children, I bought some silver salve and I use that on them as well. Yes. And now they have it in a gel, so you can just uh, rub it in your hands and wipe your hands with it if you are worried about contamination or infection, especially during flu season. And where can you get this? At the store, at the Gesundheit Nutrition Center, Very or you good. can get it at any, probably any health food store in Bozeman. Well, thank you for your time, both of you. Thank you, doctor. You're thank welcome. Thank, thank you, you very much. You bet. Now, before uh, the, the, the next section, I, we, we already hinted on the flu. Uh, this is always a big topic, comes up every year. And uh, last year with the H1N1, uh, I saw a huge amount of uh, fear being uh, projected on the population. Lots of strains were, lots of vaccines were made. Uh, I don't even think they were made in this country. I think they were made in England. Isn't that correct? They were made all over. Well, no, most of the swine flu vaccines, I mean, there's that were used in the U.S. are actually made in the U.S. Okay. There are some from Canada and there's some from Australia. Australia. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, 
I think I read just recently, it may have even been on your website, that a lot of these vaccines from last year are left and now they're being destroyed. Right. Yep, of more than more than 40 million in some cases, I, I read up to 50 million doses. So that's about 25 to 30 percent of what they manufactured needs to be destroyed. So I, you know what goes through my head when I read that is how much medical waste that is, yes. and that a large portion of those are multi-dose vials that have mercury in them. And I wonder how that was appropriately disposed of. Hmm. <laughs> and, and and now they're, they just released that they are shipping the, the vaccine that's already been manufactured, and they are planning to ship more vaccine this year than they even did last year. It's like, don't you people pay attention to your market share? Yes. Well, not <laughs> you know? only that, but my understanding is that these compananies who make the vaccine are contracted by the government. And so yep, the government... Yeah, are dollars at work. That's right. And so even if they destroy the vaccines... The, the, the companies will still get paid for the total production of vaccines. So if we're going to produce more this year, that means they're going to make more money because not that I have anything against making money, but it is it is a waste uh, of, of money, in my opinion, especially if you destroy these vaccines. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's a that's a big shock, in my opinion. Now, the, the, the vaccine, the, uh, the, the cold and flu, uh, can you give us some highlights about the flu shots? Oh, the flu shots. Yes, this year is going to be the biggest push ever. I mean, they did this big push last year, and like I mentioned briefly to the to the other caller, I think it's the the important take home message about the flu is that the flu shot is that it doesn't work. It's yeah. no more effective to prevent you from getting the flu than getting a shot of of sterile water. That somewhere between eighty and eighty six percent of the flu cases out there are caused by some other respiratory virus other than what's in the flu shot. You can get the flu shot and still get the flu because it, it's you. It's 80%, 86% of the time, it's, you're going to get the flu by something other than the viruses that are in the flu shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still get the risk of the flu shot, which can, be, which can be actually deadly. Yes. Well, I hear the music in the background, so maybe what we should do before we jump onto that, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. Health Talk Radio. Caller, good morning. Your name, please. How can we help you? My name is Kurt. Hi. Good morning, Kurt. And my question is simple. Uh, does antibodies equivalent to protection? Um, not necessarily, and nobody knows for sure. Um, when you read the CDC's documents, they talk on and on. There, there are two schools of thought. One is that they think that just by the presence of the antibody that's supposed to give you something called protective antibodies, or protect, uh-huh. and then you can read other places. Um, and I've got the documents uh, that where they they talk about in closed meetings where they say we call these protective antibodies, but we really don't know what they mean. It could mean that you've had a chronic infection. It could mean that you your body is reacting to something. It could mean that it protects you. But people that have had adequate antibody levels by on blood tests have had full blown disease, including full blown tetanus. So nobody really knows what that means, other than that the immune system has been invaded, and now we've created this thing called an antibody. And the antibodies that are created from vaccination, we know are temporary, and they fade and go away with time because of the way that they have been developed. And the body uses those amino acids that creates those antibodies for other things. 
without having a full immune response like you would have to chickenpox or measles where you've engaged the full part the full um array of what's happening in your uh, in your immune system both the what's called the TH1 side and what's called the TH2 side of the equation to have everybody on board with the fight against that infection you have artificial immunity that's caused by the vaccine that develops an antibody and people can have lots of antibodies and still get sick and they can have none as well, right? And still uh, not get the, the sickness. Exactly. They, exactly. And they've, you know, no, long before the chickenpox vaccine came out in 1995, they had done some sizable studies that showed that people that had been exposed to the chickenpox virus through a sibling or a neighbor that had antibodies that seemed, they seemed to be protected and they never demonstrated anything with the, uh, any outward signs of the, of the disease. So, it's, uh, it's an area of immunology that we've made a lot of assumptions about, but there's some holes in the arguments. And one quick question. Um, earlier, when I, when I first moved to, to the States, uh, my brother, my sister, and I, we all were given the varicella vaccine, I guess, and we all, developed, we all got chickenpox. Mm-hmm. And years later, I always questioned why my mom never got the chickenpox, uh, and I, I realized that she never actually got the vaccine. <laughs> so can that... Can can you, first of all, get a disease they try and prevent from a vaccine? Certainly from the chickenpox vaccine you can because it's a live virus vaccine and that upwards to 10% of the people that get, of the, of the kids that get um, the chickenpox vaccine get chickenpox from it and upwards to 3% develop shingles directly from the vaccine. And yes. shingles is, a, is an infection of a nerve that causes blistering and is very, mm-hmm. very, very painful. So it, with the live virus vaccines, which are chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella, smallpox, and uh, the flu mist, the one that gets squirted up your nose, that's a live virus uh-huh. vaccine, all of those have the potential for shedding and causing infection in other people and also for causing you to have the infection yourself. Wow. Thank you very much, wow. doctor. Uh-huh, uh, you're it's welcome. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Thank you, and Kurt. And have a wonderful day. Thank you, and all the best to you as well. And thanks for Thank uh, listening to the show. Caller, good morning. You are on the air with Dr. Tenpenny. What is your name, and how can we help you, please? Oh, hi. My name is Sean. Hello, Sean. Um, I am a, a fan of Dr. Tenpenny's, and, and uh, on her uh, wonderful Facebook site, Dr. Tenpenny on Vaccines, and I have kind of a general question for, for the doctor. Um, the... Uh, the effects have been have been long discussed about autism, et cetera, coming from vaccines. But what would you say to what I see as a more general and uh, a darker effect of the lesser discussed damages, such as the growing ADHD and uh-huh. learning learning disabilities, and what they might mean for the for the future of the nation? That's a great question, and we touched on that a little bit briefly, but I'm happy to, t- to talk about it again, is that autism is the far end of the spectrum, and for anyone who says that vaccines cannot cause autism, they've never really done their research, and they're just parroting the party line, because the studies that have said that there was no connections have been thoroughly refuted because of their poor um, design and the poor conclusions of those studies. So mm-hmm. if, they, if they just say vaccines don't cause autism, once again, they're parroting the party line. 
That's at the far end. If you think about a line stretched in front of you, and at the one end is no vaccines, unvaccinated, and at the far other end of that line of the disease continuum is severe brain inflammation, which can be autism and can be seizure disorders um, and and, um, other types of autoimmune diseases and neurological problems, particularly from the hepatitis B vaccine. But, Sean, you're absolutely right. There's an entire spectrum of illness, of allergies, asthma, ADD, ADHD, um, all kind of food allergies, all of those things, because we are injecting 14, uh, 49 doses of 14 different vaccines into children um, by the, but before, they're, before they're old enough to go to school, if they get all doses of that. Mm-hmm. And all of those things, it's, it's been my opinion that it's the vaccine industry that drives the entire medical system, that we can make these kids customers for life in terms of asthma medications, eczema medications, seizure problems, all these things. If in the pharmaceutical industry's vision statement is that every human being on the planet will be on a minimum of one drug for life. Wow. And what, what better way to do that than to start with infants? And so we have this entire spectrum of illness. And, you know, I have so many patients in my practice here in Cleveland, Ohio. I have so many patients of parents that had perhaps one child that was severely injured by a vaccine, and so subsequent children were not vaccinated at all. And these unvaccinated kids are like they're from another planet. Mm. They're bright. They're inquisitive. They are, they're calm. They rarely, if ever, get sick. And if they do get sick, it's like a cold or a, a virus that goes away in a couple of days. They do well in school. They're yes. not, they don't have aggressive personalities. They don't need to be on any medications. Yes. So if we had a bunch of, un, we had a population of unvaccinated kids that rarely got sick, what would happen to the healthcare industry? In, it's in the fall. future, it yes, would implode. Right. Uh-huh. It would implode. Now, the other side of that coin is all of these kids vaccinated with all these illnesses. What does the future of American America look like with adults that started out their life like that? Exactly. Right, and oh. and you know, in in the future, uh, if I just extend the rate of autism, the rate of increase that is uh, into the future at the same rate it's been for the last decade and a half or two. Literally, within a generation and a half, the prediction would be that one out of one boys will be autistic. That's everybody. Wow. That's a, is that a number that you've come up with, uh, Sean? Um, it, well, it's simply just take the, the rate. We are currently at, and I'm speaking about boys in particular, uh, uh, at about one in 55 or one in 60 whereas it was one in 10 and 25,000 just 20 years ago or 30 years ago in a generation and a half. Yeah. The rate has, of increase has stayed approximately the same, and all you got to do is do the math. It, there's about every three to four years there seems to be uh, an ungodly 60 to 65% increase in the rate. So, uh, or the, the number of people, you know, number of people per, per population that uh, are autistic. Yeah. Uh, if you just keep spreading that out, uh, I came up with the year uh, 2042, which is a generation and a half away from now, where you finally get down to literally one out of every one boys being autistic. Now, if it's genetically connected, maybe there is a stopping point there, but people have been saying that for years, and so far, 
there doesn't seem to be a stopping point. The rate is not decreasing. The rate of increase, that is, mm-hmm. has not been decreasing. So, yeah, I think that it portends disaster, uh, primarily intellectually, for, for the country. And, uh, and so all I can do is tell as many folks as I can. Well, thanks for doing that, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Dr. T. Great information. And uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny with me on the program today talking about all her great work on uh, studies and research on uh, vaccinations in this nation and actually worldwide. She's an international speaker, and she is here. Her mission in life is to educate as many people as possible about giving them the information right from the top. So it is not something that she just uh, is thinking about it's really stuff that she has researched and uh, over 10,000 hours you can find tons of information about on her website go to drtenpenny drtenpenny.com and you will find tons of information that she is asking you to copy and share with others and and let them link to her website so the people can, other people can do the research as well and it is not just for young parents it is also for all of you young students out there before you go to college and before you take those vaccines that they tell you to take because you go to college there are many alternatives out there to keep the body healthy and going and going strong for many decades to come so it's not it's not that vaccines will keep you healthy it is uh, that lifestyle and other choices are more important than uh, than the effect that uh, than, than what uh, needles can do for you, as Dr. Tenpenny ma- uh, mentioned earlier. We have another caller who would like to get in touch with Dr. Tenpenny. Good morning, caller. Your name, please. How can we help you? Jacobitz and Dr. Tenpenny, this is Sherry again. I have yes, one Sherry. more question, and I apologize. <laughs> for calling twice on the same show. No, apologies necessary. What can we Um, do for you? But I did want to point out that before my son was able to enroll in MSU, he's a pre-med student, to to get his organic chemistry done this summer, they did require that I prove that he had had all of those vaccines. Otherwise, they would not register him. Yeah, and I'm telling you that one of the things that that I, I started saying this, Sherry, about maybe about seven years ago, that I could see this as sort of like a, a thunderstorm on the horizon, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, big, black, ugly clouds rising up over the horizon. I know you've seen, we have that in Ohio, and I'm sure you guys have that in Montana. Oh, yeah, and you see do. this big storm that's coming, and I could see about seven years ago that we were getting all these parents informed and educated about not vaccinating their kids, and the next huge barrier to entry where the powers that be are going to force these vaccination on these kids is going into college and graduate schools and professional schools. Yeah, I he, get he called, said pre-med at Hopkins, and I said, uh, "Yeah, it's, them you're allergic it, to eggs." Yeah, and there's an OSHA rec- there's a, an OSHA exemption for hepatitis B. Um, there's an egg allergy thing that you can do if they had vaccines when they were a kid. You can get titers, um, but it's going to be a big problem. And I get uh, and I'm going to encourage everybody again to join us on Facebook. It's a great it's a great little community. It's facebook.com forward slash vaccine info, and because we these are the things that we discuss on a daily basis, and it's a it's a good community, and it's going to be I get cost a, a lot of people that post things that saying, I'm thinking about going into nursing school. Is there any way that I, I was never vaccinated when I was growing up and I'm perfectly healthy and I don't have any medical problems. Is there going to be a way that I can get into nursing school without getting vaccines? And I think it's going to reach the point of almost impossible here in the next couple of years. Yeah, I am a nurse and that, and that was something that was required of me as well. Um, And 
I I don't know what the answer is, but the question that I second question that I had had to do with the smallpox vaccine, which I received as a child because I have one of those little bitty scars on my on my arm, mm-hmm. and the threat of bioterrorism, and the 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 information that they put out with respect to the fact that the smallpox vaccine no longer will protect you. What are your thoughts on that? And I'll I'll, I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Sherry. Um, Thank you. When all of the smallpox stuff raised its ugly head again back in 2001 after 9-11, I actually testified twice at the CDC, once in in St. Louis and once in Atlanta, into the public record about why this should not be a mandatory vaccination across the country, and there was a lot of stuff that came up about that. Um, Some of the studies that have come out since that time have said that if you were vaccinated with smallpox somewhere in your life, that you probably still have some sort of protective antibody, and like we said before, we really don't know what that means. Um, And so I don't know what they're going to do with that. Um, You know, Dr. Dr. Tom Mack, who actually testified at the CDC ahead of me, he was one of the original people who were involved in the the smallpox eradication campaigns back in the 70s. He said smallpox was going away anyways. It was well on its way out because of hygiene. And that the reported 30% death rate was really not true. It was more like somewhere between 7 and 8% in adults, and it was a little bit higher in children because, um, and they were, and the children were not, uh, were not candidates for the vaccine anyways. Yes. So, bio, and, and I just read last night that, you know, in this health care bill, they have allowed $2 billion more for the development of bioterrorism vaccines. And so wow. they are looking at vaccinating everybody for everything. Wow. And until we can get people active and writing their, their congressmen and getting everybody in their community involved and making sure that the people who say that you're crazy look at the information before they make that accusation, yes, it's, it, this will never be a top-down change. It will always be and have to be and has been for the last 10 years a bottom-up education revolution where people have got to learn to say mm. no and, and know the reasons why. Yeah. Great, great suggestion. And again, uh, go to drtenpenny.com. You'll find lots of information about that. We have another caller who would like to ask you a question. Caller, good morning. Your name, please, and how can we help you? Yeah, Jacobus and Tenpenny. This is Steve. Hey, Steve. And and Jacobus, thank you very much for having Dr. Tenpenny on at this time because, like you said, they're going to start this big campaign. Yes, I think Montana needs to be congratulated for being dead last in this category. <laughs> I think so, too. And look around. Do you have raging epidemics of all of these childhood diseases in Montana? No. Absolutely. No. And that it needs to be what you guys stand on up there. That's my, right. uh, my question is, Dr. Tenpenny, have you looked into this national health care deal? Is it going to be mandatory uh, in that bill to have everybody vaccinated. Well, the way that I understand the bill right now, and of course it's subject to change, um, but the way that I understand the bill right now is that people will still have the right to refuse. However, there'll be a caveat, is that the way that they're setting this up, and it's another thing, I've seen it coming for the last five years, and they're finally about ready to get it implemented, is that medicine will no longer be about doctor-patient relationships, and it will no longer be about the individual health of the person sitting in front of you, the patient sitting in front of you. It will be algorithm, excuse me, algorithm-driven care, diagnostics, and treatments. What What does that mean, algorithm? So... 
So algorithm meaning that there will be a, a chart, there will be a flow diagram that, set, that, that are the standards of care. So let's say, for example, if you have an elevated cholesterol and your doctor tests you and your cholesterol is, say, 250, and your doctor recommends Lipitor, and you don't, and you don't take the Lipitor and you have a heart attack, then there are provisions inside of that health care bill that because you did not follow standard of care, that heart attack won't be covered by the insurance, or you will be denied insurance. The same thing about vaccines. We've got these vaccination schedules, and if you choose to not be vaccinated, it could potentially, and I say potentially, give them the right to refuse you coverage, and if you get sick, refuse you the right of, of health care to take care of you. Wow. These are the algorithms, sort of the, the policies, and they've been setting this up inside of the medical literature for years now, that these are the standards of care that everyone must follow. And if your doctor says, take this pill, you have to take it. If it says, get this vaccine, you have to take it. And now they've got the leverage on the other side to bring it to fruition. And if you don't follow what they tell you to do, then these are going to be the consequences. And that's my take on the health care bill right now. So they, they still allow you to refuse, but there's refusal with consequence. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, there's another book out that Eustace Mullins wrote uh, a long time ago called Murder by Injection, where they purposely put uh, cancer in the smallpox vaccine. Um, and that was, he wrote that book with the aid of a doctor. And, and the AIDS, they took uh, the, uh, and put the AIDS virus in the hepatitis B vaccine and vaccinated the, the homosexuals with it so we would think it was a homosexual disease. You know, I, I believe, and I, I know they believe, the Earth was built for 500 million people, and this is just another way to get it down. But thank you very much, Jacobus. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for the yeah. call, and thanks for listening. Yeah. And it, obviously, we are concerned. We are concerned about what they put in the needle or in the in the fluid and uh, what effect it has in the long run. And as I quoted earlier from uh, Dr. Tenpenny's book, "Say No to Vaccines," the foreword by uh, by Dr. Uh, by Dr. Andrew Molden, that. He says there are people that get, can get an anaphylactic shock from just eating peanuts. There are people who have uh, milk that have an egg allergy. And uh, they put all kinds of stuff in, in, in a vaccine. And why do they tell you not to eat certain things? And why do they allow you to have vaccines or force you almost to have a vaccination? Uh, we don't know on a mass scale what effect it can have on an individual's health, especially when you look at how many people's health is already compromised to begin with. So we're having an issue with compromised health uh, because I think the average American, Dr. Tenpenny, is on like 12 medication. Is that correct? Um, I've heard that, that the average, that the average woman age 57 is on a minimum of seven, seven prescription medications. Yeah. So that means already that they may have a compromised immune system. And, uh, well, that they already, they definitely do have a compromised immune system. Yeah. So just throwing a vaccine is not very helpful. We have another caller. We'd like to weigh in the last couple of minutes. Your caller, your name, how can we help you, please? Hi, this is Michael. Michael, good morning to you. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering about colloidal silver, the difference between the, the regular colloidal silver and the AI, the uh, so, nano silver. 
Go ahead. You know, I don't have a big opinion on that. I know that we use our Genton 23 in our office. We like that a lot. Um, I know there's a lot of conflicting information about the different cylinders, and it's certainly not my area of expertise. So I don't feel qualified to really go into the details of that. Uh, have you heard of Have you heard of uh, American Biotech? I have not. I have not either. Mm. Yeah, it's a good silver. They've got a website up. They testified before Congress how uh, their nano silver, their nano silver uh, um, cured malaria within five days. The guy, the guy that had it was over it, and they testified before Congress. Is that that? Is that the the MMS product? Uh, it's just American Biotech. Okay. American Biotech, and then. I, I don't know the brand name of it, but well, it's good. I've, I've used it, and I've been—I haven't been sick all year. And I—I I started getting sick in the morning, and I take like probably four tablespoons of that nano silver, and within a half an hour, I wasn't. There well, was no, it was like normal again. That's great information. I appreciate that, uh, Michael. Yep. We got to run, but uh, thanks for the info. Thank you. All right. Uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, thank you so much for being with us today. And I wish you all the best with your research and your work. And I hope we can talk to you again in the future. Super. Thank you so much and have a good afternoon. All right. Thank you much. Folks, we're going to be right back. Uh, stay tuned for the rest of the Gesundheit with Jacobus radio show. Since we were talking about the flu... That is, of course, the big one. And uh, some of the information that Dr. Tenpenny has on her website is the truth about the flu shot. Uh, what is in a regular flu shot? What's in a regular flu shot? Egg proteins, which include the avian contaminant viruses. There is gelatin in it, known to cause an allergic reaction, and anaphylaxis, which are usually associated with the sensitivity to egg or gelatin. Then there is the polysorbate 80. Uh, which can cause severe allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis. We have the formaldehyde, obviously. We know that that is a known carcinogen. There is something in there called Triton X100, which is a strong detergent. There is sucrose in it, which is table sugar. There is resin, known to cause allergic reactions. Gentamicine, which is an antibiotic. And thimerosal, which is mercury, uh, which is still in the multi-dose flu shot vials. So then the information is we say, they say that obviously vaccination will help people from being sick and being infected. Now, I have said before to people that if you go from day to day and you wake up in the morning, and from the time you wake up in the morning and the time you go to bed, all of us eat more food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks in between, coffee, tea, beer, wine, whatever you do, you drink and eat, and water during the day, then we take vitamins or pills in general. So when you, you think about that, the amount of foods and liquids that we take in on a daily basis, pound for pound, weighs a lot more than anything else we put in our mouth or in our body, such as a needle or even the taking of vitamins. So why is it that when we take one shot with all the things in it, why would that keep us healthy? Whereas if we were to make sure that we adjust our diet and lifestyle, if we get enough sleep, if we do some exercise, it's not crazy, you know, just do what is comfortable for you, have a positive mind, do some meditation, do some yoga, 
do some do some healthy good conversations with friends and family and eat a diet that has a nice variety of proteins and carbohydrates and add your minerals to it take some essential fats on a daily basis your fish and your flax oil and your borage oil and evening primrose oil and hemp seed oil and 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 look at a good assortment of vitamins on a regular daily basis not only will you help your body fight infections the quality of your life is going up so it is just that you start feeling better you're sharper in your mind you wake up with less aches and pains during the day your digestion will be better by having regular meals maybe take some digestive enzymes so it is the combination of that that will strengthen your body and mind much more than just getting a shot in your arm. I mean, just theoretically thinking about it. Just you add some liquid with some pretty nasty stuff inside. You cannot tell me that that when you walk out of the office, that you're going to feel so much better all of a sudden about your health. That you think, okay, now I can do whatever I want because I had the shot. So now I can just, I will be protected. Because the fact of the matter is that those people who have been having shots, and especially the flu shots, which come up every year, have not shown to protect people more from getting the flu than those people who decide not to get the flu shot. As a matter of fact, the numbers are staggering. And I give you some idea. Do flu shots work? It says, not in babies. In a review of more than 51 studies, 51 studies involving more than 294,000 children. Isn't that amazing? 294,000 children. It was found that there was no evidence that injecting children from 6 to 24 months of age with a flu shot was any more effective than a placebo. In children over two years, it was only effective 33% of the time in preventing the flu. And this was a vaccines for, well, the reference is the vaccines for preventing influenza in healthy children, which is the Cochrane database of systematic reviews in 2008. How about the flu shots in children with asthma? A study, 800 children with asthma, where one half, where one half were vaccinated, so 400 were vaccinated, and the other half did not receive the influenza vaccine. The two groups were compared with respect to clinic visits, emergency department visits, and hospitalizations for asthma. Conclusion. This study failed to provide evidence that the influenza vaccine prevents pediatric asthma exacerbations, which came from a study called Effectiveness of Influenza Vaccine for the Prevention of Asthma Exacerbations, which came out in uh, 2004. How about another one on children with asthma? The inactivated flu vaccine, Flumist, which is a spray, does not prevent influenza-related hospitalization in children, especially the ones with asthma. In fact, children who get the flu vaccine are more at risk for hospitalization than children who do not get the vaccine. This was from uh, the reference, the American Thoracic Society's 105th International Conference, which was May 15th to 20th, 2009 in San Diego. How about adults? How are we affected by the flu vaccine? In a review of 48 reports 
including more than 66,000 adults, vaccination of healthy adults, healthy adults only reduced the risk of influenza, reduced it by 6%, and it reduced the number of missed workdays by less than one day, which is 0.16 days. It did not change the number of people needing to go to hospitals or take time off work. So this was from a study in 2006, the vaccines for preventing influenza on healthy adults. Now, definitely what we hear every year, the elderly need to take the flu shot and young children. So we already see that for young children, it doesn't make any difference. There are so many other things you can do to actually boost the immune system. The vaccine is shown in 294,000 children that it did not affect them getting or not getting the flu. It was, you might as well not vaccinate them. How about the elderly? In a, in a review of 64 studies in 98 flu seasons, 64 studies in 98 flu seasons, for elderly people living in nursing homes, flu shots were non-significant for preventing the flu. For elderly living in the community, vaccines were not significantly effective against the influenza, the ILI, or pneumonia. And this is for vaccines for preventing influenza in the elderly. The Cochrane Database of Systemic Reviews back in 2006. So here you are talking about a flu that is worrisome. And it shows that actually the people, the amount of people who are affected by uh, the flu in a very negative way or who actually have died is less than two or 3,000 per year. And, and, and as we said yesterday, or we said earlier in the show, 40 to 50 billion flu vaccines from last year are going to be destroyed they're going to be paid for by the government because the companies who make these, they can make whatever they want. I mean, we, we hear them say, well, there's only so much needed. But obviously, somebody had it wrong. They either overestimated the amount of people that were going to get the vaccine or they produced it too late and then produced too many to make up for it. Or people indeed said, well, hey, we don't want the vaccine. So 40 to 50 billion are destroyed, no, million, 40 to 50 million vaccines are destroyed, and the companies who make these vaccines will still get a paycheck. Now, how often can you go to work and say, just don't work, we'll give you a paycheck anyway? That is just an amazing statistic, what is happening in this country, and this is all your tax dollars at work where you have no say. So, point of the matter is, if you can take care of your own health better, that is the way to help yourself through the flu season. So what Dr. Sherry Tenpenny said, the effect of vitamin D is important. Five to eight to 10,000 vitamin D3 during the winter season is going to affect all of us, not only in our mood and in our energy, it will help with calcium absorption. It has shown that over 2,000 units of vitamin D on a daily basis is helping to fight and protect against cancers, different kinds of cancers. And, um, and then on top of that, we see that it actually helps to fight viruses. 
So vitamin D is one of those miracle vitamins that has shown great benefits to young and old. Uh, Very important to do that, and we just don't have enough in our system because we do make vitamin D through the cholesterol, as I mentioned earlier, but we need sun on the skin in order to activate that vitamin D that's being produced in order to be effective. So that is something you definitely want to keep in mind. Now, Dr. Uh, Sherry Tenpenny in her book, uh, Saying No to Vaccines, she says people have asked her if she is anti-vaccine. She says, well, I prefer a different, more complex description. She says, I oppose the one-size-fits-all public health policy imposed by state rules and enforced by physicians and public health employees. She says, I oppose a system that forces parents to make decisions based on fear. A physician who forces a parent to vaccinate by using threats, such as reporting the parents to children's services for medical neglect or threatening to discharge a family from the medical practice for not vaccinating, is not the physician you want to care for for your family. She says, I'm opposed to those behaviors. Dr. Tenpenny says, I oppose public health policy that demands the rights of the individual must become secondary to injecting a product that can have deadly consequences. Public health officials credit vaccination alone for low infection rates and use persuasion and coercion to enforce vaccination policy. I support the freedom to refuse any medical procedure. So I support the freedom to refuse any medical procedure, including the right to refuse a vaccination. Once a person understands the real risks of vaccine-preventable infections and the real risks of vaccines designed to prevent them, I support the person's right to make a choice regarding which risk they are willing to accept. Dr. Tenpenny says, I am in favor of fully informed consent, which means giving a person the full range of pros and cons about a medical option and then allowing the option to refuse. I am pro-information. Most information distributed to the general public by government organizations about the benefits of vaccines is incomplete at best and at worst, deceptive. However, those that challenge The official stands about vaccinations are marginalized as anti-vaccine eccentrics or conspiracy theorists. The premise behind vaccinations need to be challenged. A debate cannot occur if questions is not allowed. She also says that she believes that vaccines can cause more harm to the health of the individual and subsequently to the community as a whole than the good claimed by doctors and public health officials. And, and this is an interesting, she says also, what, what this other doctor said who spoke right after her, um, this doctor, uh, Dr. Andrew Molden, who is a physician and neuroscientist with a background of neuroimmunology and brain disorders, he says, I have come to recognize that changing the medical system To help others help themselves is the most important work that we can do. Now, he says over here that uh, Dr. Tenpenny's work reflects the name of her company, New Medical Awareness, NMA, New Medical Awareness, by separating medical product truth 
from medical product marketing. The top five pharmaceutical companies have combined revenues of more than $600 billion a year. The top five pharmaceutical companies have a combined revenues of more than $600 billion a year. That's more than Chuck and I make in 10 lifetimes. With nearly unlimited, well, I don't know, Chuck, did I say, is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, good. With nearly unlimited financial resources, the industry has evolved from promotions directed towards physicians to going directly to the consumers who generate sales. So Dr. Molden says, this is not a conspiracy theory, as Dr. Tenpenny just said. People think if you're against vaccine, you must be a pro-conspiracy person. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a healthcare product marketing. This is healthcare product marketing in the 21st century. Drug companies have positioned themselves to take control of the checks and balances assumed to be in place to protect consumers, in large part by hijacking the U.S. Congress. Now, here are some facts. Congress receives millions of dollars in campaign donations from pharmaceutical interest to indirectly secure votes that guarantee their profits. For example, the new Medicare prescription drug benefit bill narrowly passed in 2003, which will cost taxpayers more than $1.2 trillion in the coming decade, dollars flowing directly into the coffers of Big Pharma. So understand that. You barely ever have a sale when you go to a doctor's office. No doctor in this town have seen that has a blue light special on Tuesdays or any other day of the week where you can come and get 25% off your office visit because you've been such a regular. Or maybe to, to uh, uh, inspire new patients. They can get away with charging whatever they want to charge. Right or wrong, doesn't matter. There is just no sale. It's the same with the pharmaceutical companies. You go pick up a prescription drug. The pharmaceutical company is guaranteed their money somehow, either from you or through the insurance companies. The FDA whistleblowers say concerns about drug safety are ignored. Congress voted down amendments that would make it harder for scientists who have accepted money from a drug company to advise the FDA on drug approval applications. Number three, congressmen and women, congressional staffers, and other federal officials leave public services for high-paying positions within the pharmaceutical industry Rewards for helping increase industry profits by billions of dollars. Number four, drug company lobbyists on Capitol Hill. Think about that. Drug company lobbyists on Capitol Hill outnumber members of Congress by two to one. According to the nonpartisan Center for Public Integrity, the industry has spent more money on lobbying than any other single industry. 855 million dollars from 1998 to 2006 855 million dollars just for lobbying the current global vac number six number five what is it? number five the current global vaccine market has seen double digit growth for the last 10 years and was worth 10 billion dollars in 2007 alone more than 95 percent of the current global vaccine supply is controlled by sanofi pasteur GlaxoSmithKline. Merck, Wyeth, and Novartis. These companies are not only buying up small vaccine R&D companies, but they are also expanding their manufacturing capacity by building more facilities globally. 
So commercials say, ask your doctor if this vaccine is right for you. Don't you know that? I mean, every time you watch TV and talk about this, ask your doctor if this is right for you. Well, Dr. Molden says doctors are not trained on vaccine history, nor are they aware of problems with safety studies and the long list of potential adverse events. In this information age, you may be more informed about problems associated with vaccines than your doctor. So, and that's why you can go to drtenpenny.com and find out more information about uh, research that has been done and that she has been working on at least for the last 10 years. Questions that every adult need to ask to a doctor or to yourself include, what is the truth about vaccine safety? Are all these vaccines necessary? Why is there a global epidemic of increasing chronic disease and developmental disabilities? Why has the incidence of autism increased by more than 1,700% since 1991? Why is one child in six learning disabled? One child in 150, and those numbers are coming down, obviously, we just talked about in the last hour. Why are so many children autistic? Why is one child in nine asthmatic? One child in 450 diabetic? Why are 15% of children now diagnosed with attention deficit disorders? Why are infants and toddlers dying with cause of death undetermined on their death certificates? Sudden infant death, SID, is not a diagnosis. It is an unexplained symptom that the medical profession has not solved. How are vaccines contributing to these epidemics? Stay tuned, folks. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. I am grateful for the work that is being done by people and more and more things that we're hearing about the the vaccines. And I know that somebody like uh, Jenny McCarthy, who has been a a model and actress and who is married to, uh, what's her name, Jim Carrey, the comedian, actor, um, she has a son with autism and she is strongly convinced that it has to do with the vaccinations that he has received and she has been on the media path and giving lectures all over to give information that, in her opinion, is very relevant for people to know about protecting their children from vaccines and especially from the effects that it may have and creating autism. Uh, Some people call her a cook because she is an actress and she doesn't know what she's talking about. However, she is so, so devoted and so dedicated that, again, we go back to this age of information that is out there with the Internet. She has received a lot of information and studied a lot of information, just like Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, about what is out there and what people should be aware of. It's all about awareness. And as I said before, at the beginning of the program, I'm not here to diagnose, treat, or cure but we give information. Use the information to your own discretion. If this is something that is playing in your life right now, and I know that we have listeners who have younger children. We also have senior citizens listening. You are usually the ones that are going to be involved in the vaccination program come flu season. It's going to be said that young people of young children, infants, and the elderly are at the highest risk of developing a flu, and therefore that could have devastating results. You cannot protect yourself just with a needle. It is a combination of things. If you stay off the sugar for a few days, if you 
resist or uh, cut back in your dairy intake. Instead of having a glass of milk every day, start looking into almond milk or goat milk or now they're even talking about donkey milk. Uh, some people uh, say that is the closest to human milk as possible because there are even children who have an effect on, on goat milk, a negative reaction to goat milk. Whatever you can do to all of a sudden help your body get stronger, trust me, it's going to be better for you. Isn't it interesting that when we feel sick, we often don't feel like eating? The book Chicken Soup for the Soul is not something that was just came up by chance. Many of us, the first thing we do after we haven't felt good is eating chicken broth. So often our body doesn't want to handle anything else. So obviously by changing what we eat or eliminating some of the food in order to give our body a chance to go through the reaction is safe to do, uh, to, to start the healing process, to let the body reboot itself. They often said, and I think on one of the DVDs from Dr. Tenpenny that I have at home, she is talking about uh, the raising of temperature. So they say, oh, people have 101 degree to go like, oh, my God, I am sick. I have the flu. And she said, if you get up to 1617, 106, 107, you really got to watch out. But 101 to 104 is, a, is, is a, the flu. You have, you have the, the heat, the fever. But that doesn't mean you're going to die. It's just something you keep an eye on. You use cold packs, ice, uh, lots of fluids, and the body mean, it means that the body is actually reacting to something that is going on in the inside. Let the body do what it's supposed to do and give it just enough nutrition to fight off that specific infection. And the reason why I say that is because the numbers are showing that just because you have an infection doesn't mean you're going to die from it or that you're going to have a major reaction that is going to debilitate your quality of life. On the other hand, what we do see is that as children are being vaccinated, and as Dr. Tenpenny said, 16 vaccines, all different kinds of strains before a child is actually six, six months old, this is, this is very dangerous. So we need to keep this stuff in, in, in uh, we need to keep this, uh, this information in mind as we are, or before the age of six, I said six months, six, six years old, uh, 49 doses of 14 different vaccines are given to children before they're even six years old. That is an amazing thing. If you go back to uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who has been on the show, he is always talking about the importance of the age of six. He said, until the age of six, we are like a sponge. That happens already while we are in, uh, while our parents are expecting us, but also the first six years of life. The effect that we get from outside influences are sticking with us for the rest of our lives. And so there is no coincidence here that children get so many vaccines before they're six years old. The long-term effects, as Dr. Tenpenny mentioned, is not just the risk, the increased risk of autism or Asperger's, it is also the effects on ADD and ADHD, allergies of all kinds of food, allergies in the form of asthma and asthma attacks, the increased risk of diabetes, especially because the, the highly addictive nature of uh, getting into the sugars and the carbohydrates. 
So there are things that we need to keep in mind to keep the body healthy. And um, having said all that, uh, 522-8255 is the number, 522-8255. So I want to come back for just a moment about the big new ad campaign that is going to start right here in the Gallatin Valley. I don't know about Park County, but they're working on that as well. I'm sure they're working on the entire state of Montana. There's a new ad campaign aims to encourage immunization for young children in the Gallatin County. And this was in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle yesterday, front page. So it says that because we are that last in the United States, we are all the way at the bottom of people who are a, a population that is not being vaccinated. They're going to start tomorrow in full force with a big ad campaign, print ads, radio spots, billboards, and movie theater previews. And I heard this last week, a few days ago, right here in the studio, the ad for the Bozeman Deaconess Hospital, uh, which is going to play. And they have these one-minute ads, and, and um, it, it talks very clearly about the misinformation that people have about vaccinations. And so that they say, don't be afraid. You know, there is nothing wrong with it. All these people who say that it is not good for you, don't trust them. They do not know what they're talking about. That is plain and simple being said in this ad. And many of you, many listeners who hear those ads say, yes, of course the doctor knows best. But as this Dr. Molden says, doctors are not trained. They don't even have the time with all the patients that they have in their offices to even educate themselves, to take a book and educate themselves about the vaccines, the dangers of vaccine and the long-term effect of vaccines. You can educate yourself. So when it says, trust your doctor, and as you will hear in the Bozeman Deaconess campaign coming up on the newspaper or in the, uh, in the, in the uh, radio ads, you pretty much feel like you're stupid, that you're stupid because you even dare to question the fact of uh, the dangers in vaccines. So there is, there is a lot that we need to know. There's a lot that we need to learn. It says over here that Montana has the worst rate of immunization for children 19 to 35. Is it the worst because it is the lowest? Or should we say Montana has the best rate of immunization for children 19 to 35 because we don't have, not everybody is, is vaccinated? And as Dr. Tenpenny said also, there is a difference between vaccinations and immunizations. A vaccination is the actual act of putting a needle or a mist up the nose or a needle in the arm or wherever we put the needle with a substance, a toxic substance that goes into the body. An immunization is what you hope to create out of this vaccination. There's no guarantee you will be immunized, and that's why so many people still have the side effects of it. It says over here in the article, in the Chronicle, there are no hard facts on why Montanans don't get their children vaccinated as often as people in other states. Health officials can only speculate. There are no hard facts. Well, maybe people are educated in this state or maybe they're concerned. Maybe people are not stupid. Maybe people say, hey, I don't want to be vaccinated. Lori Francis mentions is mentioned in there as well, and she is with the Community Health Partners in Livingston. She says getting all of the uh, CHP's young patients fully immunized is priority. Community health partners. She says getting all young patients fully immunized is priority. 
She says, I think this data is important because it will help us mobilize to improve to improve immunization rates. No, she is vaccinating. She is not immunizing. She hopes to immunize, but she is first of all vaccinating. And again, there are other things that you can do in order to help yourself with that. The state is also actively working to improve Montana's standing nationally, says Jim Murphy, chief of the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services Communicable Diseases Bureau. This includes an effort to keep the state's immunization registry updated. You see how they how they use the words vaccination immunization intermittently. It's just not correct, which means working with counties to improve their reporting system. Not every county looks badly when you look at individual county data, Murphy says. In some counties, it may be a resource issue. Either they're not taking the time or they don't have the staff to notify children to come in. We're trying to step up that area. Murphy also says the state is also working on an ad campaign, as well as outreach in daycares and private clinics. But when it comes to figuring out how to get more children vaccinated, a lot of the heavy lifting falls to the counties. He encouraged parents to seek on to seek out. <laughs> he encouraged parents to seek out accurate information about vaccine safety, either by contacting the health department. Or healthcare providers. Now, I'm not a healthcare provider, but I think today's show will give people some more information. And I think the website, drtenpenny.com, will give you some great outlet, a great outlet to become the best educated person you are. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Murphy. I appreciate that, um, um, <laughs> that you encourage parents to seek out accurate information about vaccine safety. He says, we understand that parents have questions about vaccine safety and they have questions about whether they need to protect against diseases they don't hear much more about. Unfortunately for us, we are trying to compete with sources of information that are not very accurate, he said. The alternative, which is to vaccine, uh, the alternatives to vaccine is not good. The alternative being diseases that are easily preventable. Isn't that something? I mean, for all of you who've listened today, let me quote that again. Unfortunately for us, we are trying to compete. Compete? What do you mean compete? You just as another alternative. It's not competition. It's about giving the right information, give people a choice. We're trying to compete with sources of information that are not very accurate, he says. The alternative to vaccines is not good. The alternative being diseases that are easily preventable. When you look at the smallpox vaccine and you look at the polio, you see that actually the numbers were going down naturally before they actually figured out the vaccine to inject in people to make sure it would never happen again. The body was taking care of itself. And some of the, some of the issues that they have and some of the solutions that you have, if you feel that somebody has a flu or has an infection, stay home. They talk about quarantining. Well, the government may want to quarantine you, but if you quarantine yourself and your family inside the house and make sure that it does its thing, then you will not affect the rest of the community. It is the people who go out, who don't wash their hands, who start coughing in public, uh, who go to the office because they have to work and not do anything else but just take the flu shots or some kind of an uh, injection, 
who are not doing anything else about their health to make sure that they're not affecting their colleagues or people they're carpooling with or uh, people at the club or wherever you go so that these vaccines, that, that these infections start spreading around. And I understand if you look at dorms, students get sick and they pass it on to each other. But now let's face, let's look at the majority of students in the lifestyle that they live. They're not always having the healthiest diet. They don't always have the healthiest lifestyle, not enough sleep. Their activities late at night are usually, they're busier during the night than that they are doing the morning hours. So the regular sleep pattern is really not there. So what can you do as a student if you are interested in helping yourself protect yourself from these, from a possible infectious disorder if you were not to be vaccinated? You can take large doses doses of vitamin D3. We're talking about 10,000 a day. We're also talking about increased vitamin C uptake or vitamin C. And Dr. Tenpenny is very clear what some of the suggestions that she has is pre-treat. If you, if you are going to have a vaccine, so now this is for people who are going to be vaccinated. You know that you, let's say she is talking about the students who, are, who, who cannot attend college, who cannot go to school because they need to get vaccinated. Now, these are some suggestions that she has. So if you are forced to be vaccinated, vitamin C, pre-treat, pre-treat five days before, the day off, and five days after the vaccination. And for adults, that would be to bowel tolerance. So an easy way is to take powder. You can get about 4,000 to 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C in a teaspoon. And you do that take 10, 15,000, 20,000 a day to see till you get a loose stool. When you get a loose stool, take a little bit less. You can also do it with tablets. So you can say, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing two tablets, 1,000 milligrams each, and I do that every hour, or one every hour. That brings you up to 10, 12, 13,000 a day, and that will help you. And if you get a loose stool, then you back off the next day. So pre-treat five days before, the day of the vaccination and five days after the vaccination. For children, do 10 milligrams of vitamin C per pound of body weight once to twice a day. 10 milligrams per pound of body weight once to twice a day. The other thing is vitamin A. Pre-treat three days before and the day of the vaccination. Adults do 100,000 IUs a day. 100,000 IUs a day. And children do 25 to 50,000 units a day. So that will be pre-treated three days before and the day of the vaccination. Now, immediately after your vaccination, wipe it off with alcohol and apply a mineral oil poultice for a minimum of 30 minutes. A mineral oil poultice for a minimum of 30 minutes. And then take four to eight ounces of silver daily for a few weeks. And that will help you to fight any infection that you may get from the possible vaccine. So having said all that, folks, we are at the end of the show. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. It was a great program, good information. So have a great week and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.